there, everyone. This is the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer, and thank you so much for joining us in what is a very difficult time for everyone. We are social distancing here on the podcast, so joining me remotely from different corners of London are Gregor Robertson and Matt Dickinson. Gregor, I'll come to you in just a moment, but I'm pretty sure the last time we spoke to you, Matt, you were talking about the competitiveness in your household. How's that going? Um, well, no one's punched each other yet, so I guess that's um, <laughs> that. That take that as a bonus. We, we almost did punch each other. We played Monopoly the other night, which um, is is <laughs> definitely a bad bad move under quarantine circumstances. <laughs> uh, who was at fault for that then? Who was getting too riled? Uh, my my younger son couldn't couldn't understandably handle the fact that I managed to beat him despite only owning one set of properties on the board, so, uh, um, which he seemed to magically land on, um, and I did struggle to I did struggle to restrain my gloating every time he landed on Vine Street to my uh, to, to my delight. <laughs> anyway, and Gregor, obviously we've got to have our regular regular catch up when it comes to your press up challenge. What was it, forty three last time? What are you at now? Yeah, I, look, I'm going to be honest every week, okay? And I went for a run this morning and I came back uh, and it was 40. So I don't know. I must have been tired. I must have been exerting myself too much this weekend or something. But um, I'm pretty disappointed with that. Oh, Gregor, that isn't <laughs> good. You can't, you've got, if you're going to focus on this challenge, make sure you focus on it properly. I'm, I'm focusing on technique. There's some, been some shoddy technique in the, in the group, I tell you that. Some half press-ups that are counting. Not happy. Oh, dear. Well, anyway, we'll get our regular update hopefully on Thursday and see if you've gone back up with your numbers. Okay, so coming up, plenty on the way in what is going to be a very busy podcast. All that is to come, but first this. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Okay, let's start with Liverpool then. The Champions League winners and Premier League leaders have announced that they will use government money and the furlough scheme to place some non-playing staff on temporary leave. Staff affected will receive 80% of their salary from the government and the club will make up the difference. As you can imagine, it's safe to say that this news hasn't gone down well. Jamie Carragher has said this. Jurgen Klopp showed compassion for all at the start of this pandemic. Senior players heavily involved in Premier League players taking wage cuts. Then all that respect and goodwill is lost. Pour this from Liverpool. And the Times' as Henry Winter has gone one step further, writing Liverpool's board, including the owner, John W. Henry, and chairman Tom Werner, have acted with naked capitalism, offending the spirit of the coronavirus job retention scheme and insulting the legacy of Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley, the conscience of their supporters and the beliefs of a squad led by the admirable Jordan Henderson and their enlightened manager Jurgen Klopp. So I know we've spoken about this already on the podcast over the last week or so but Gregor if I come to you first on this do you agree with what both Jamie Carragher and Henry Winter are saying? Yeah to an extent I mean it's just such an easy own goal to avoid I think when you look at the numbers the sheer numbers you know uh, 533 million turnover 42 million profit uh, Mm. last year furloughing uh, about 200 staff members saves them no more than one and a half million a month Um, and this is the seventh richest club in the world so it's just it's just to sort of 
the speed and ease with which it seems to have been it seems to be happening. You know, clubs are not hanging around and taking advantage of this uh this scheme without really knowing how long um this is all gonna go on for. Mm. I thought none of us know that. Um and so then the second thing is that Liverpool, as we say, kinda of purport to be something more than a football club. They they have a strap line, this means more. You know, they they trumpet Bill Shankly and his socialist heritage. Jurgen Klopp, judging by his rhetoric, basically is a socialist himself. Um and as Henry said, this is naked capitalism. But I'm not sure how surprised we should be. I think you know Johnny Johnny Northcroft was, had it right on Thursday when he was saying that clubs, what what kind of sticks in the throat is that clubs aren't are supposed to be something more than just a business, um, and they are to fans, they are to communities, they are to the charitable foundations that they're associated to and that they kind of do good work with. Uh, they are to a lot of players, actually, but to the owners of these kind of mega rich elite clubs, no. Uh, as Henry says, they're they're capitalists, um, and I think if there's anything faintly positive to come from all this, it's it's this act should act as a reminder how far elite football has come from the traditional kind of values that uh, you know that the clubs are founded upon. Um, and look. The, Liverpool's owners aren't bad, aren't bad guys. They've, they've probably grown to love Liverpool, like many owners do. But it's an investment. And so all the kind of trumpeting of the, the club's values and heritage and stuff, that's a market That's a market employee. Um, and I think that's become strikingly clear uh, after this. Uh, it's interesting. You've touched on the figures. It was in February that Liverpool announced their latest financial figures. They reported that they had a turnover increasing from by 78 million to 533 million their overall profit before tax was reported at 42 million and and Gregor mentioned it there Matt if I come to you on this this government scheme has only been in place for about what two weeks at most does it surprise you that these clubs are already saying they want to be a part of the furlough scheme um, well, it, it didn't in some cases. You know, when Mike Ashley said he was going to do it, it was like, well, you, you, we could all see that coming. I think yeah. when Daniel Levy did it, we were sort of, hmm, well, you know, uh, I didn't fall off my chair. But I, I genuinely did when I saw Liverpool do it. Um, because, well, for the reasons that, that Henry's written about and then Gregor just um, mapped out, um, I, I, I partly thought they were you know brighter than this on on certainly on if you just see it purely on a pr terms um there was a win win here where you sit down with the players and you explain the situation about you know that you're you're sort of doing the sums and the the possibility of doing the furlough scheme and the other possibility of the players chipping in as they have at different clubs around the continent to to cover staff uh wages and there was a win win to be had there and I just don't, I can't for the life of me fathom why they ignored that, that open goal. Um, I mean, they, you know, as Gregor's absolutely hit the nail on the head and there's a wider argument here about football, what a football club is and what it stands for now because, you know, some huge firms have gone down the furlough scheme without the outcry and, and a, someone who tried to defend the Liverpool position pointed that out to me earlier today. But, you know, we're back to football is different. You know, football is different in a business sense. You know, players 
are assets on the books in a way that you know they're not at Burger King or um, British Airways but also you know there is this sense that as you say what does a football club represent and I think that's where the shock comes from it being Liverpool is that you know Liverpool have you know I I mean I I saw um, Brian Reid pulled up a quote um, from Peter Moore the chief executive you know saying we think when we make a a business decision we think, what would Shankly do? Uh, and Brian quite rightly pointed out, you know, Shankly wouldn't say we're going to furlough the staff, take taxpayers' money while while we're rich in profit and while we have another path that we could have gone down. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm genuinely um, really quite, yeah, I, I'm more confused. And then, I mean, obviously, anger comes into it when you think about it as well. But it's the confusion of of Liverpool um, doing something that, you know, anyone could have told them was going to bring a backlash. Anyone could have told them the sums involved are certainly, you know, not worth any type of backlash. And, you know, a time when football is getting itself into a bit of an unedifying mess about, you know, who's going to take a pay cut, who's paying for what, where the game's going. This just struck me, you know, it's, it struck me as a, a false move on so many levels because it skews all those arguments as well when they're talking about, you know, our player's going to take a cut. Where's that cut going to go? Is it lying in the pockets of, of owners rather than going to people who are vulnerable and needy? This type of move completely, say, skews those conversations as well. Mm. Well, in the announcement of their financial figures, Liverpool it seemed, gloated about the fact that they maintained its seventh position in the Deloitte Football Money League, having moved up two places from ninth during the previous financial year. They then went on to say that they have nine new commercial partners that have joined the club. Uh, they had retail, they said, had a record-breaking season in sales with footfall surpassing a million fans into the official Liverpool stores as well. And, and when you do look at the money list, Gregor, Liverpool then seventh, one behind Manchester City, who only have, what, uh, something like six million more in comparison. But we know Manchester City have already come out and said they will not be furloughing their staff. And they have obviously done other things as well to help the community, as we know most clubs are doing. Um, do you think Liverpool may well reconsider this decision? I think there's a good chance, yeah. I think that... Um... They did so in the past. I can't remember exactly which year it was when the they, they hiked the ticket prices significantly, and there was a huge backlash to that. Um, and they came out and essentially admitted the error of their ways. And they, the fact that they said that this isn't just an investment for us, all these types of type of things, and um, and they did change, uh, did reverse that decision. I think. But again, just to, to highlight the point, it's such it's such small figures in the grand scheme of things that they were saving up, saving here, um, and the priority has to be to come to an arrangement with the players because that's the vast vast majority of what I think is a three hundred and ten million pounds annual wage bill. Um, and can you think of a bigger deterrent for Premier League players now in talks about making a cut or, or deferral to their wage? Than their billionaire owners going cap in hand to the state to pay the non-playing staff, many of whom are kind of our friends. I, I wrote a piece on Saturday saying that, you know, you've got the the club chef, the the team bus driver, um, this all the office staff. There's like stewards that when you play for a club for a long time and you you shake the same guy's hand at the players' entrance every 
every home game. Uh, there's so many people uh, at, at kind of the fabric of a football club that footballers are not just kind of shielded in this little kind of cocoon or bubble from. They're, they're part of the football club and and they know them very well. So to to see that to see their owners essentially asking the state to pay their wages, that kind of make make you think. What are we taking the cuts for then? Well, we can move this story on because, Matt, you've written a piece alongside Matt Lawton and and Martin Ziegler in the paper. And it's uh, referring to Premier League club chiefs wanting to push players on wages and cut their own pay. This is what we know so far. Players aren't happy at taking a 30% pay cut if the money goes back to the club rather than on the coronavirus fight. A statement issued by the PFA on Saturday suggested pay cuts would harm our NHS. And there was a video conference call that had took place, which included Premier League managers and captains, during which Kevin De Bruyne, Troy Deeney and Mark Noble were the only three players permitted to speak. The captains have now formed a WhatsApp group and the fund, which is the brainchild of Liverpool's Jordan Henderson, hope to raise millions for the health service, which will be launched, they hope, in the next few days. Matt, obviously we've spoken about what's happening at Liverpool and we know other clubs have decided to take on the furlough scheme, but the players, it seems do have a heart in all of this and they want to do their bit well I th- you know i think the majority do i mean i think you know it's, it's uh, very easy to to generalize you know i spoke to an agent the other day who said look you know one club he knew there was a um an overseas player who's down into the last few months of his contract who was basically saying look you know the club don't want me i don't want to stay around here um i, I want out of here and i'm i want to take take my wages before i go so you know that that it's it's impossible to generalise um, entirely, but I think I think there's been mistakes at so many levels. I think I do think the players made a mistake um, in basically they were told to wait for the PFA and Gordon Taylor to to sort of we'll handle this, and actually I think there was a, a sort of uh, a limbo, and it would have been better if you know highest profile players had come out and just. Just to acknowledge, they didn't have to make promises, didn't have to make precise plans, but just to acknowledge, you know, we know there's a lot of hardship ahead. We know that football, even at the top end, could suffer. And, you know, we understand that we are going to have to be part of the solution, you know, and, and, uh, you know, acknowledge our privileged um, position. So that would have helped. I think that would have helped certainly get ahead of some of the sort of political point scoring that's come. I think the clubs, obviously, as we talked about in furloughing, that's been a uh, you know, PR disaster, certainly when it reaches the scale of Liverpool doing it, because of, of all of that. And because also the Premier League, you know, as, as, a, as an entity um, and as the clubs initially wanted to do it as a sort of across-the-board measure, and I don't think that was ever going to be practical. I think this is ultimately is going to come down to club by, by club, and that should have been recognised sooner. So for all of those, you know, those are the three key reasons, I think, that this has become, um, a, you know, a pretty sort of ugly standoff because, you know, the country's out there and I'm sure we've all got a lot of friends who are, t- you know, you know, losing sleep and losing jobs as we speak. And, you know, they, people would like to see the football community at least, you know, come together and be part of the solution. And it's failing to do so at the moment, even though, yeah, players are willing to step up, are willing to give some of their riches to good causes. I suppose, Gregor, it it may not help, I don't know, you might think differently, that we're hearing EFL clubs are already having 
wage deferrals with their players. We know that Leeds, Birmingham and Brentford have announced that. Do you think that sort of makes people look upon the Premier League players in, in a, a bad light because they're not coming forward already and saying things? Um, I don't, I'm not sure it does because, because the kind of financial landscape is so, so different at, the, at those two levels. You know, if uh, clubs clubs in the EFL don't do something very quickly, then they'll be in serious trouble. Whereas Premier League football clubs, you know, they they they, they at least they have such huge revenue from TV money. Um, they're almost all owned by by billionaires. I think it's like eighteen out of twenty. Um, you think there would be a little bit more time to take a deep breath and and decide how. I think that's the thing. It, it has to be. There has to be balance in this. There has to be. You know, everyone's been acting to further their own ends so far. Matt's right. It's been pretty unedifying to to watch. But you know, the owners of clubs have jumped on jumped on the scheme very quickly, as will probably come to government ministers who are even deflecting onto footballers who, who are a very easy target. Um, and not every footballer is going to be happy with, with foregoing money. I mean, as we've said, a lot of them do good work, but there's going to be some who will be pushing back against this. Um, and then the PFA, as we've discussed, they take take an age to get anything done. Um, but they are making some valid points, like the fact that public purse would be lighter if players agree to a cut. Um, this the sheer point about making sure that the money is diverted to the right place. I mean... Again, I th- I would like to see if there's anything, any cuts, there would be a percentage of that that would go into some kind of hardship for 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 players lower down the pyramid because they're undoubtedly going to be some who are going to need it. Um, and I think they're going to need it far more than than billionaire owners of football clubs uh, who, you know, even, even we're talking about these, these guys could surely have easy access to a little bit of to debt to kind of tied them over until the broadcast revenue gets up and running again. This is it's, we're talking about people in different worlds, and and ultimately, I think one thing we've kind of that coronavirus is showing up is that the people with the broadest shoulders have to bear a little bit more of the burden right right now. And Matt, the, the news today from the FA is that they are making cuts. They're making proposals on what they need to to do. Uh, during this climate of uncertainty with the pandemic. They are proposing that all employees earning £50,000 or more per annum will take a temporary pay reduction at 7.5%. They also say that higher salaries uh, taking the greater responsibility a la the senior management team have already agreed to cut their pay by 15% with even higher earners in the organisation agreeing to reduce their pay by up to 30%. They also say they're looking into what options are available to us, they say, through the government's furlough scheme as a contingency plan. Um, obviously, we've been talking about what's happening with Liverpool and, and other Premier League clubs that are wanting to use the furlough scheme. What do you make of the FA stance? I'm not surprised. I mean, I think it was inevitable they were going to take a, a big hit. I mean, just, you know, simple top line things like losing key fixtures. Obviously, you know, Euro 2020 has been put back a year. You know, the, their their cash flow is going to take a um, significant dip over the months ahead. So I think they were always going to have to take measures. And, and I mean, I guess we should distinguish the FA from the clubs. I mean, I know it can all feel like one big um, business, but you know, the FA is there 
to you know to make a surplus to then plow that back into the game um so you know it's not about lining the pockets of of you know billionaire owners um it's about trying to serve the wider game but uh, you know i think um it was inevitable that uh, they they were going to have to take measures and and obviously it wasn't a big surprise that someone like Gareth Southgate was keen to sort of you know put out early that he was he was ready to 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 take a hit i think there's a lot of people at the FA who will just know that you know they're going to have to um take a cutback um for the foreseeable future the train is now approaching junction at platform iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wayne Rooney's column in the Sunday Times continues to be a fascinating read. This week, the former England captain asks, why are footballers suddenly the scapegoats? Rooney doesn't hold back. He says this, how the past few days have played out is a disgrace. First, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, in his daily update on coronavirus, said that Premier League players should take a pay cut. He was supposed to be giving the nation the latest on the biggest crisis we've faced in our lifetimes. Why was the pay of footballers even in his head? Was he desperate to divert attention from his government's handling of this pandemic? He goes on to explain that grouping all footballers together is the wrong thing to do. He said this, we have one player who lives with his mum on a council estate, who I imagine has responsibility for paying the bills for his whole family. He's a footballer, but he's facing the same circumstances as lots of people in our country today. He's a youngster and hasn't had time to build up any security to fall back on. A cut might be fine for me, but what about him? 30% of £2,000 a week would lose him £600, and that could be what his family needs to live on. Matt, is Rooney right of footballers being made scapegoats? Well, they've certainly been dragged into it. And, uh, you know, I think as some of the point, you know, on the one hand, politicians are, are certainly right uh, and entitled to, to look at this, the furlough scheme, as we've discussed, and to to ask hard questions about, you know, and also, to be honest, to go back to the the sort of law and the rule book on those furlough schemes and consider when they are appropriate, when they aren't, and how to, you know, sort of differentiate between the two so it can't be exploited. But equally, you know, it's so easy just to you know to footballers wages are a sort of source of it seems endless um discussion debate fascination we you know I, I think there's probably a whole column that couldn't maybe even should be written about why you know why we're you know 
this sort of constant week to week rating of not just you know he played well or he played badly but he played well for 50 grand a week or for 200 grand a week and and you know it's become a sort of constant measure of worth of footballers you know we know more about wages and salaries and um than than perhaps we ever wanted to these days and uh you know football it's back to that issue about what well, we're talking about liverpool and why they're held to a, a sort of certain standard and football's profile does mean that players are are held up as you know expected to be role models and set an example and I do think on the one hand you could say well they're scapegoated but on the other it, it is an opportunity to be seen to be leaders and seen to be good for the community and be seen to recognize the the role they have the profile they have and that stature and that that's why I come back to I don't think we should just accept that, you know, the players are, you know, all um, sort of blameless in this, in the sense of I think they could have got ahead of the story. And I know there's a frustration among a few that, that they didn't because I think they sort of ended up on the back foot and ended up being dragged into this in a way that if, you know, if there'd been a rec- an earlier recognition, that would have helped um, if only on a, you know, on a, on a PR side. And, and so, I, no, I don't think they should be, you know, sort of um, battered and, uh, and be made scapegoats. But equally, they do have a, a potential role in this whole story, in, in this, you know, sort of time when we're looking for everyone to step up. Um, you know, they can make the world feel slightly better about itself. Uh, Gregor, I mean, I know there are complications to all of this and and Matt alluded to that uh, a little bit earlier on with a player who's coming to the end of his contract and and therefore should he really have to uh, chip in, let's say. But do you think footballers, and and I'm talking high-end footballers, will be able to repair some of the damage that may be caused as, as a result of what is happening right now? Because there are a lot of people out there who are suggesting that footballers need to be doing more. Um, I think I actually feel that over the over the last few days the kind of public opinion has slightly softened. I might be wrong. I might be naive in that. I think that um, you know some of the arguments are being laid out as to as to why this why players haven't just jumped in and and foregone like thirty percent of their wages or whatever because they are owned by guys who are, as I said, billionaires who are now going cap in hand to the state. That's there is there is something that is. You know, fundamentally out of balance there, and and understandably angers a lot of people. But I think people were conflating those two separate issues. It was almost like footballers have, because footballers hadn't said we're going to pay everyone's wages, the clubs went to went went to to access the the furlough scheme. You know, I don't think that's true. I think they, they didn't have an opportunity to do that. So, I think probably it is going to damage the relationship. I think a little bit between supporters and, and footballers. I think there will something will happen. There will be a there will be a cut. There will be a, a deferral. It may be that it's a deferral that's that's based on you know when the season starts, whether there's supporters in the stadium, uh, you know, a guarantee of receiving the broadcast revenue. Um, but at the end of the day. There is no doubt that footballers are being scapegoated because we're talking about 500 people at a maximum uh, who simply because they're recognisable faces. And look, again, this ties in with what we've been saying about football clubs being something more than a business and um, and these guys being sort of idolised. 
but essentially that's what they do. They play football for a living, and 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 how how a government minister can can single out one group of employees. They're not even business owners. Employees. Uh, I was absolutely bemused by when you know big businesses and um, are, are are kind of not paying not paying tax in many cases, and <laughs> I, I I found it astonishing personally. Okay, and finally, in the Sunday Times, uh, Rooney also looks back on England's 2006 World Cup campaign, which saw him travel to Germany despite breaking three metatarsals playing for Manchester United at the back end of the regular season. Having recovered enough to train, Rooney then explains how he tore his groin in a training session just one day back from injury, but opted not to let on and instead have a physio work on it so he could still travel to Germany. That is something he now regrets. Matt, you were in Germany in 2006. Was it England's biggest ever missed opportunity? Uh, I I thought 2004 felt worse than 2006. To be honest, because 2004 there was a, I felt there was a a sort of positive vibe around the place, and you know Rooney came in then and was this, you know, thrilling teenager, took the world by storm. Obviously, got injured in that semi final, but that you know that tournament was was there to be won. You know, Greece won it in the end. Who were you know, functional and made the best of themselves, but were were far from great. The the Portugal team that England faced in two thousand and four were beatable, and again they were they were beatable in two thousand and six. But that tournament would just smelt wrong, certainly to me and to to a few people. Um, I had a few sort of shall we say well placed uh, <laughs> moles inside the camp in two thousand and six, and I think. It, 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 there was a lot of it was the, the the tournament of the wags which people remember and I know that shouldn't affect whether you win or lose football matches but I honestly do think it did I mean I know there were some players very unhappy with how other players were handling um, that whole side of things wondering about people's priorities I and obviously Rooney himself had this sort of long um, had this sort of race against time to get back and get fit into the tournament, and came back unfit. Um, Sven, by that stage, I think he had been a you know a, a, a sort of decent England manager in the in the first half of his reign, maybe even better than decent, but had lost his um, you know lost his way a bit as well. So you know that was the tournament where he offered Beckham the chance to. To, to go in at right back to keep him in the team, which thankfully never happened. So, ah. you know, I, I think there were a few reasons why, even if England had won that penalty shootout against Portugal, they were never going to win the tournament. Whereas in 2004, I, I genuine, genuinely think they could and perhaps even should have done. Um, just talk to us about these moles you had, you had Matt. That's intrigued <laughs> me a little bit. How many moles did you have? Uh, well, you know, you go in depending on you know different times of your career and and different players. You you know your your sort of relationship with with players sort of ebbs and flows uh, for different reasons. But um, you know, sometimes it's with players, sometimes it's with agents, sometimes it's with you know wives, you know uncles, dads, and whoever. But it's um, I just remember that tournament, you know, being struck by you know you obviously you're constantly there trying to smell the mood and hear the gossip and find out what's going on and um I just really remember being struck by two or three conversations you know you know as as the group games were going on and and as England advanced that just 
just gave me the distinct impression this was not you know it might seem a happy camp on the surface but actually there was a lot of niggling going on frank lampard had a bad uh, tough time with the fans I don't, if if you remember around then he was unhappy about a few things i think um um there was uh yeah i say that the beckham story didn't actually come out during the tournament but um that sort of smacked of something not not being right i think there were yeah it just it was there were niggles niggles and i say you know niggly teams can still win football matches but i just never got a vibe that that was a place that that was a camp that was all pulling the right way and i think say sven you know a lot of it comes from leadership and i'm afraid i think say sven 2002 through to 2004 um you know we were we were doing. I think I mentioned. I think I said maybe semi-final before. It's obviously quarter-finals. But I think um, I, I just felt we should we should have. Um, set, you know, Rooney's injury was a sort of excuse in two thousand and four. But I just think two thousand and six. Yeah, we were never going to make the best of ourselves. And um, you know, I, there were quite a few reasons for that. Gregor, I'm guessing you're you're sat there right now with a big smile on your face, hearing about all the all the issues within the England camp and how it didn't work out. I mean, it, it, it was kind of pretty entertaining, actually. Every tournament, these things kept coming round. There's sort of enormous expectation and the kind of endless debate about fitting Lampard and Gerrard in the same midfield. I actually looked at the at the team uh, against Portugal, though, and you had Michael Carrick, Owen Hargreaves, Joe Cole, David Beckham, Frank Lampard, and Steven Gerrard. You know, six, six, six midfielders, just like, I don't know, was it Owen Hargreaves no, who ended up playing right back? Uh, the, I mean, that was Hargreaves. Hargreaves came in as the, the holder in that game and, and was easily the best player on the pitch. He was, you know, that was the one where it was like, right, was this the solution to the Gerrard-Lampard thing all along? <laughs> yeah. Um, and have we found out, you know, Sod's Law, we found out in the game when we get knocked out anyway. Um, I think it was, the trouble was, there was talk about whether, and I'm probably going to make a terrible blunder here, but I think there was talk of whether Lennon should come in on the, basically the team had gone, they'd gone to one striker, but there was not nearly enough pace in the team. Um, yeah. So that that was that was the problem. Owen had got injured, hadn't he? Um, and... Uh, basically, so they had you know a half it Rooney playing and des- desperately needed some pace. Desperately needed people who were going to get up and and you know be sort of second you know get get beyond him. Um, so there was there was arguments about how we're going to get pace in the team, and in the end we didn't. And um, again, that was that was that was a sort of more of a tactical reasons why we didn't go through. But I think there were you know two or two or three big issues around uh, around that tournament. Gregor, do you do you need to sort of own up that you might have been sat wearing a Portugal shirt? I don't know, something like that. <laughs> no, I was never that petty. I did have one or two <laughs> friends who who uh, sported Sweden strips, but I think you were already through by the time you faced Sweden. So uh, no, I wasn't. I wasn't that bad. But it was it it was quite kind of entertaining um, to see to see. It's almost like England were kind of tearing themselves apart from the inside. Uh, in most of these tournaments, and I'm glad to see. I am glad actually to see that that's kind of come to an end, and that there seems to be a bit more of a a unified uh, 
centre to the to the England squad at the moment and a manager who's who everyone respects and and uh, and seems to enjoy playing for. Are you genuinely? Are you genuine <laughs> about that? Are you really? No, genuine? no, of course I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, this this is. <laughs> this is a likable bunch. I think this is it's important. I mean, I think it, you know, and that's the tribute to Gareth Southgate. He and he does, you know, seem to that. That's the frustration. I mean, I think you know, um, yeah, winning a winning a tournament. You know, a lot has to fall into place, but it did feel by two thousand and six like they were, as Gregor rightly says, and cackle cackles about. Um, they were, yeah. There's a lot of self inflicted damage by that stage, and and that's that's what really frustrates. You know, it was. Um, yeah, they 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 should have been better than that. And uh, yeah, I, I remember I remember feeling a pretty sort of bitter feeling at the end at the end of that uh, of that tournament of just yeah that sense of under underachievement and not giving the best of of looking at the lineup like like Gregory's out in just in midfield and thinking, hang on a minute, this lot were, this lot should have been better than that. Um, but mind you, my uh, my kids were asking me about the worst sort of tournament best and worst tournaments the other day and yeah we're, we're getting frustrated by 2006 let's not even get into iceland in 2016 <laughs> oh, oh let's no. let's no let's definitely move on <laughs> from that but all i'll say 2006 i think i just not long started working in in sport television so i was kind of all wrapped up in the whole uh, world cup and everything and obviously like many england fans desperately upset by the outcome of it but that is it for now many thanks to gregor and to you matt as well you may find yourself with a little bit more time in your hands in the coming weeks so do remember you can subscribe to the times and the sunday times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial all you have to do is search the times subscription for more information we will be back with you on thursday for another game podcast in the meantime please keep well and stay safe VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.